0: Are we going forward or are we going backward? Is time circular? Are we autonomous? These are all questions asked by Nolan's newest movie. All the hype about it, Tenant, A palindrome in the title and also in the way the film interacts with the viewer. So because of COVID, we decided to not see it in a theater, but actually at the drive-in. Do you like the drive-in?
1: I like the drive-in when i'm watching films that i don't care to pay a lot of attention to because sound quality is not up to par with regular theater screen small there's a lot of distractions
0: i 100 percent agree you can sneak alcohol into the theater yep. <laughs> but that all being said it was nice to be able to see this movie i really would have loved to see this on the big screen Nolan is known for filming now most of his works in 70mm and IMAX reels, so it would have been nice to see some of these shots on a much larger screen. Not going with Hans Zimmer, his usual preferred composer, but going with Ludwig Granson, who did a great job composing a new score which retains a lot of those Zimmer elements of these huge dark basses built on analog synths, and having a full-on THX, subsystem would have been great for this movie overall a highly enjoyable entertaining film we're going to get into some of the points of the film mentioning maybe some symbolism that it takes and exploring how well elements of the cinematography and the writing interact to build out one of the most time-defying films to date
1: i agree after a bombing and gassing incident at the kiev opera house the protagonist who remains nameless throughout the film. He's captured by the enemy, who we assume is Russian.
0: Based on accent.
1: Yeah. He's tortured, and he takes a cyanide capsule, as he was ordered to do in training. He ends up surviving, and his allegiance to the system and his orders leads to a promotion of sorts. It's a top-secret assignment that involves a new technology that has the potential to to literally rewrite human history. The plan of the mission is to gather nine pieces of the algorithm, the title of a weapon that has been scattered throughout time and space. The holder of the compiled algorithm, um, once all the pieces are assembled, has the power to invert entropy. So Satyr, our villain, has a terminal illness. he is destined to die. But he plans to kill all of humanity when he goes. And he plans to do this through obtainment of the algorithm. So on the side, Sater is also collaborating with these mysterious figures of the future who believes his action could somehow put an end to climate change by reversing the entropy of all life on Earth. However, the protagonist, Neil, his
0: right-hand man.
1: Yeah, his right-hand man and Cat, who is Sater's wife, all try to stop his actions. Using something called a temporal style, which allows a person to become inverted and travel backwards in time, they aim to put a stop to Sater's plan. They are successful as Cat kills Sater in the Italian Mediterranean, and soon after we discover that the protagonist is actually working for himself.
0: Yeah. As in particular Nolan's style, there is a great action scene at the end, paralleling the actions of Kat as she is trying to operate in history previously. But while things are moving forward, we're also getting this team that is interacting to try and extract part of the algorithm, which Seder has already assembled and detonated.
1: And so initially, when the film ended... I thought it was crazy and genius, and I was like, wow, that was so good.
0: Yeah, in the car ride home, (laughs) you were gushing about it. You're like, this is the best movie (laughs) I've seen all year.
1: I was like, that was so crazy. And then I thought about it for a minute, and I was like, what was that even about? Like, what was the point?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's an excellent story, and the vision behind the film is incredible how they formulate this suspense and this time-based mission. But once you get through that, there's not a ton of symbolism that's concrete. I I contrast this in my own head to Suspiria, where Suspiria went full-on in the symbolic direction, while this film went full-on in the entertaining what can we do in cinema, Yeah. what can we show on a screen.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was truly a hallmark of film.
0: Which is funny that both Nolan and I would argue Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was similar in this vein is it's the culmination of these very 2000s defining directors that they're just starting to pull all these elements that they love together, but not necessarily introducing anything that's wildly new or out of their canon.
1: So yeah, what were your initial reactions?
0: I thought it was actually unpredictable. Because it was very easy to start understanding that the protagonist was actually working for himself. Oh, really? Yeah. And as we started to learn more and more about Neil, I was like, this guy seems like he knows more than he's letting on. But the one part that really surprised me that was probably my favorite scene is where they start going backwards in time. And you get the car rolling. But beyond that, the portion where they have masks on and they fight themselves. And you've seen it both forward and back. I was like, this is either genius or they were on a budget because they were just like, we're going to roll the same scene back and we're just going to count it as a new scene. So I thought that was one of my favorite scenes of the film. And that's where things all started to line up for me. I was like, oh, okay, I know what's going to happen now. Mm -hmm. But when that girl dove off the boat just based upon trailers i was like that's probably her
1: like from the first time we see them on yeah. the boat,
0: and i think that really only comes from an understanding of nolan's work at this point yeah that he loves to show the viewer something and lead them in a direction and then not necessarily fulfill their expectation of that that was my initial reaction yeah i was like this is a really fun entertaining film it was nice to see something brand new i did see mulan but this was a film I was excited about pre-pandemic, mm. and I was actually able to see it, which I feel is rare. I was also excited about the new James Bond film, just because Bond holds a special place in my heart.
1: Have you seen all the original Bonds? No, oh.
0: I used to rent them from the library. Yeah. And half the time the DVDs would be so scratched it would just like get halfway through and it would just start glitching out. Oh. I feel like a lot of them are shit, to be honest.
1: They are shit but it's a chapter of film history. That is true. That was so influential.
0: I don't watch films before 2000 though.
1: Yeah Greg is a hyper contemporary man.
0: Yeah I don't like films that came before 2000 because the CGI sucks.
1: So I think before we dive a little deeper into the film we should first talk about the title and the character names. So obviously Tenet is a palindrome. If you didn't figured out from looking at it or even the movie posters they made it pretty obvious that it was like a backwards and forwards thing but I also wonder because it's 10 forward and 10 backwards if 10 is somehow symbolic but also a tenant by definition is a principle or belief and it seems fitting as well because the protagonist really doesn't know what he's doing when he's given this top secret assignment he doesn't know what his mission is He doesn't really know what he's trying to accomplish, and he doesn't know who he's working for. And so he wholeheartedly puts his faith into this mission and believes that it's good.
0: I had trouble with this name. Why? Because I didn't necessarily feel like it covered on that many tenants or those that were very heartfelt, like save the world, good tenant.
1: And you weren't into that idea?
0: I just thought it was kind of basic. (laughs) Like, why did they name the film Tenant then?
1: I thought it was also notable that the main character is only known as the protagonist. And we never find out his name. But the other characters, which realistically, the cast is relatively small. But we have four main characters. Five if you include Cat and Sater's son.
0: Which seems characteristic of Nolan.
1: Yes. But why is the protagonist anonymous? And then the other characters are given very short names, like Neil and Kat. And Sater's full name is Andre Sater. So he's given a first and last name, but I don't know.
0: Here's my idea. Okay. This film, in some way, subverts the Bond genre.
1: How does it subvert? the? It evokes?
0: It evokes and it subverts. Okay. Bond is such a heavily used part of those films For example, my name is Bond, James Bond. And here this could act as a subversion of that namesake that suddenly now it's an unnamed figure. So maybe it has to do with it doesn't matter who this person is, but they are the protagonist because they believe in Tenet. Yeah,
1: which kind of allows for the audience to imprint themselves on this character.
0: Somewhat. There is an anonymity to... The protagonist that allows the audience to connect and become that person. But beyond that, still a little questioning this choice. Did you feel that it really made a difference to you whether it was named the protagonist or not?
1: I think so. And I think that is one of my major critiques of the film. You could argue a lot of Nolan films have this characteristic to them, but I felt this one more strongly did. And it's that the characters weren't super relatable and I didn't really get emotionally attached to any of them.
0: Yeah. Did you think the acting was good?
1: I thought the most notable performance was by Robert Pattinson. Yeah,
0: I 100% agree with you.
1: And that's it.
0: <laughs> I was surprised because the actor who plays the protagonist showed he was fairly multifaceted in Black Klansmen.
1: Yeah, I just felt that his acting was not on par to, I think, who this character was trying to be, or who this character was intended to be. Maybe it was just out of his repertoire. I was not impressed by John David Washington's performance, and maybe it's because he hasn't played a ton of protagonists by Bond-esque characters in super thriller action films before.
0: Would you have liked to see him more suave then, and less muted?
1: It wasn't necessarily suave or muted. I just don't think the acting was like on par with Robert Pattinson.
0: I feel Robert Pattinson's character had a lot of charisma and the protagonist never really developed that. He seems very one dimensional the entire time, both in terms of the way he carries himself and in the way he talks with people. He's very goal oriented. This is the way it is. Did you think that the actor who played Andre Seador was a good fit? And what did you think of Sater as a villain?
1: So Sater as a villain to me felt very cut from this same cloth as most Bond villains, even down to the detail that he was Russian and like has all these side affairs and a lot of under the table gigs. For the most part, I think he did good, but I feel like the character itself was pretty one dimensional. It just seemed like the character was written as Russian mob. Man who is angry. Because if you think about it, he knows he's going to die. He's trying to collect the algorithm to destroy humanity. He doesn't really have mercy. He's basically holding Kat hostage.
0: Why would they make his character Russian? Is it a reflection of the Cold War?
1: I think part of it is this neo-Cold War-esque world that Nolan tries to drop us into. And I think that's also because of speculation around World War Three, Right. In our world today is this idea that World War Three is going to be like a second Cold War. Not necessarily a war of physical violence, although that will certainly be present, but it's more of intellectual and technological affairs rather than war about borders.
0: I am trying to piece together in my mind right now if there are any elements that are reminiscent of the Cold War throughout the film or any character motivations and... I'm having trouble understanding how this element of time plays into this idea. One thing that is coming to mind is the usage of memory and how memory and war are related and the memory of the Cold War and perhaps the political state now.
1: I guess also, too, though, the war thing happening here, the mission that the protagonist is sent on, is kind of centered around a sort of arms race where multiple organizations, I guess you could call them, are trying to get the algorithm and are trying to solve all these mysteries of the future weapons that are changing the physical makeup of the Earth.
0: Yeah. So hear me out. So the weapon is called the algorithm, right? Yeah. And Russia recently played a big role in the hacking of the election. So to your point that World War III is going to be a war of technology. Perhaps this is alluding to the data-driven attacks that have been happening to manipulate people via an algorithm. That's a potential read.
1: Yes. No, I think it's really a potential read.
0: I'm going to yeah. get on my data soapbox and say right now, if you haven't seen The Social Dilemma, <laughs> you should probably watch it and probably delete all that social media unless you're trying to be controlled.
1: The Social Dilemma and also The Great Hack.
0: If you want more information on why data privacy is important, think about watching The Great Hack, which we'll touch into the role of big data in elections, specifically the Cambridge Analytica fiasco of 2016. That's not to be said that big data doesn't have a place and it hasn't developed a lot of amazing things, but it's important to know what unintended biases and outcomes can result of AI products. So, the characters were not necessarily the best match for this film, but it was nice to see Nolan using a new cast that was not the traditional players he often selects. Moving forward though, we want to start talking about how the film was set up and how those elements interact. Also talking about Nolan's other works and how this fits into his canon. Does it show progression off of Dunkirk or is it something that he's been tried and true in and is not doing anything creatively new? First, we want to talk about time as time sits as a very central element to this film. One visualization of the way this film is structured is a zigzag, specifically one that looks like a Z. So we start off forward in time, and then we cut back, and then move forward again. I like this way of visualizing the film because it details how elegantly Nolan has been able to visualize a film that operates in parallel dimensions, plays with time, and deals with seeing things in both forward and a reverse that is digestible. What do we know about Nolan and time? If you've seen some of his other works, you know he loves to play with the idea of time, memory, and perception, which are all very present within this film. Films like Inception and Interstellar have previously used time in the sense that they've gone from one timeline and zoomed down in So in Inception, you see the layers of dreams where time is altered for each of those dream states. Same thing happens in Interstellar when they go down to the water planet. Applying that to this film, Nolan sees some sort of growth here. He starts to explore nonlinear timelines not only from a storytelling perspective, but now he actually is entering a nonlinear timeline and trying to describe it in a movie framework, which is a linearly dependent time frame, So this seems like a logical step for him. And I think he pulls it off really well. He is able to take this work and showcase to a viewer, look, I'm gonna show you films from the forward and I'm gonna show you them from the back. And then I'm gonna have them happening at the same time. And it's gonna be digestible and work as an entertaining story element not just a cinematic flex. Overall, I thought this was one of the best portions of Tenant was this ability to draw a narrative that took on this zigzag architecture, which maybe has been done before, but in my eyes has never been as accessible as it was in Tenant. The cinematography, the score, they all add significant portions to this ideology, enabling the film to operate in this manner of tension between forward and past and how things can interact. Because objectively, like we talked about, it is hard to visualize these ideas in your brain. So for him to be able to show you in a movie is in itself an achievement by Nolan.
1: TLDR, he hit it from the front and he hit it from behind. <laughs> Yeah.
0: That was good. good.
1: Also, when you're thinking about that, the N in tenant, if you flip the N on its side,
0: oh, <laughs>
1: it makes a Z. Nice, nice. Another plot element was the amount of narrative happening by the characters. And again, you could say that this is something that is present in most of Nolan's films but I think here it wasn't executed as well as other films is this very saturated expository dialogue of the characters where they're almost trying to explain literally everything so that the viewer knows what's going on But I almost wonder if in this case, if less would have been more.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. When Inception first came out, it required multiple viewings because you were like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. In some ways, it could be seen as a money machine, right? Because you have to watch a movie multiple times in order to get it. That works well for the industry. But as you said, here he does less of it. He has the characters talk through it. Right. Robert Pattinson gets time dedicated to it. The scientist has time dedicated to it. Even Sater spends some time alluding to it. Right. And I don't think it was necessary. I don't. But part of me wonders if this was the editing team was like, yeah, we got to have more exposition in here <laughs> because it's hard to comprehend.
1: Yeah, it does seem uncharacteristic of him, and you could say it's complex, this timeline that you outlined, and that big zigzag is made up of smaller consecutive zigzags that go in and out. It may seem like a very difficult concept to grasp, but so does Inception, so does Interstellar. Like, I don't think that the excessive dialogue was productive.
0: Yeah, it felt like the script was rushed.
1: Yeah, from the very beginning. Because we meet the scientist with the protagonist immediately after he's assigned. Yeah. And she just like has this whole monologue about what's going on and everything.
0: The film felt hyper edited as is. Mm. There were so many cuts made where it felt there was more in that scene, especially in the beginning. And part of this is I was not paying attention to the beginning because we were having radio issues at the drive in and I couldn't hear shit. That being said, the beginning seemed like it was lacking in depth. Part of me wishes runtime was extended a little bit, and those themes were allowed to be fleshed out without just being told to the viewer.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, yes, we felt that that could have been polished a bit, and also the emotional attachment to his characters could have been stronger, I felt this was also missing from this film that has been present in his other films. And I just compared this film to his other films because I know he has done it before. We know that he's capable of creating strong characters and these characters did not feel as strong. And I think because of that, I didn't feel the tragedy that I think I was supposed to feel.
0: Yeah, personally, I feel that also is part of the drive-in experience.
1: Oh, yeah, that could be it, too. So,
0: I would like to rewatch this movie. There have been complaints made also about the audio being hard to understand.
1: Oh, like from people who saw it in theaters? Yeah.
0: I think from a character standpoint, it would be nice to rewatch this and eliminate that as a confounding variable. Yeah. Who do you think is Nolan's best character in his whole work canon?
1: Well, that's hard because... I would almost say the the Joker, but I think a lot of that is attributed to Heath Ledger's dedication to the role and performance of the role. But that character was so good.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I think the Joker was Nolan's strongest villain mm-hmm. and character. I think that's one of the things, though, that is not Nolan's strongest point. Nolan writes fantastic visionary films yes but his character development is not as strong as Quentin Tarantino like you look at Django and Schultz as a pair versus Mm -hmm. Neil and the protagonist and there is an element of caring that you feel so much more with Quentin's films than Nolan's films
1: yeah and I think Django is a good example because we've seen Leonardo DiCaprio in both tarantino and nolan films
0: oh dicaprio is so good in django yeah so good. the revenant the revenant was a technical masterpiece yeah but a fucking garbage can to watch
1: oh that's a statement
0: i hated that film nolan takes a lot of different genres and applies his own twist to them specifically we can see this in interstellar with the fourth dimensional i don't even know I, that scene still confuses me what the fuck was going on The Prestige was a story about this magician which became complicated with the supernatural elements. Batman, he actually goes the opposite direction and takes a comic, which was initially a comedy, and made it into a very serious, very political movie, which goes to show how Nolan likes to take genres and start to blend them. He does that again here with Tennant in the way that he plays with the spy genre, He does a few things here that are different. Kat has a very pronounced role. She plays a key portion of the story, which is not all linked to her sexuality. I also liked that a lot of this movie was not all just about how strong the protagonist is or how good of a fighter he is, but actually his intellect that is enabling him to be able to create this story arc throughout the time. But like any Nolan film, he manages to pull elements in to keep it within that genre. Speaking on the technical elements now, Nolan since Dunkirk has really started to favor 70 millimeter and IMAX. Again, I would have loved to see this film with actual speakers. I like that he really encourages audiences to see his film in the theater. Obviously that's not great for right now because of COVID, but I like this idea of returning to theater and giving the middle finger to streaming services. Do you like IMAX movies?
1: Yeah, I like IMAX movies. I
0: love IMAX. (laughs) When I saw Avatar for the first time, I was blown away. Yeah. And that is an unwieldy cinema experience, which is unique to our time right now. Yeah. And so I like that he caters his films to leverage the tools that enable those platforms. He's using the technical advancements of his time.
1: Yeah, there's even art historical arguments for the importance of theaters where physically the audience sits in space and the environment that a theater creates that really is not replicable.
0: 100%. Would you like to have a millimeter film projector?
1: Yeah, wouldn't that be awesome?
0: Yeah, until your house burned down.
1: Well, yeah, but you got to be careful. That would be so dope. (laughs) Yeah, I think that would be cool. But it would be (laughs) so hard to buy some of
0: these movies. You think about how expensive that would be?
1: So expensive.
0: What do you think of the Sundance environment or the film festival environment? For those of you that have maybe not gone to a film festival before... They're very packed. Almost every film is seat to seat to seat and they're on these huge screens, typically on stages.
1: In auditoriums.
0: Where the sound is not as good as it is in a normal theater. I wonder how that plays into the award ceremony as a process. Are the sound engineers programming to premiere there or are they programming to premiere at the big theater where they really take use of the full system?
1: See, that's a good question, and I think it teeters a line because film festivals are full of people who love film, right? But they do have to accommodate such large crowds, and so oftentimes they'll do multiple viewings, but they are usually in auditorium settings.
0: I would like to eventually get the big boy pack and yeah, go see a few at, at the, the Pyramid.
1: Bronx. Oh, at the Pyramid, yeah. Yeah,
0: and see some of the Park City premieres. Because I think as a whole, that experience is different than the one offered in just an auditorium.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that is a good question. And, and I don't know what that means. In terms of the editor's engineering sound for a specific venue, that could happen. Do you remember when we saw B. Water and the director at the end was talking about how his editor was putting things together like the week before? Mm -hmm. So the film had just gotten done. Yeah. So it's possible that he was like, okay, I know our venue, maybe make adjustments. And I'm sure after they premiere, they make more edits.
0: And post the premiere, they do change some too. Like a good example of this is The Social Dilemma premiered at Sundance this year and there was added footage for COVID that was placed in. and Ah. At the time of premiere, there was no COVID. There are post-edits that are added before the movie releases on its large scale. It would be great to have a director on the show to interview them about what the process of making a film is like, because I'm so unfamiliar with that. If you're a director, or you would like to come on the show, or you have a friend that would like to come on the show, please let us know. We would love to have you. Along with technical, we have the score. And... Any Nolan film that I've seen is always defined by the Hans Zimmer score that accompanies it. Weirdly, this film did not have a Hans Zimmer score, although it definitely seems like it at first pass. Hans Zimmer's actually busy right now working on Dune, so he was unavailable. But he recommended Ludwig as a substitute who has been in charge of the Black Panther soundtrack and of the Creed II soundtrack. Nolan heavily relies on music as part of his storytelling process, not to mention that he loves raw synth sounds which evoke a very particular emotion. He uses this as a storytelling device, allowing his dialogues to be pulled back a bit and instead replaced by the anxiety or the relief or the backwards elements that are present in a lot of his soundtracks. Think Batman, Interstellar, Inception, perhaps In my eyes, the best done was Dunkirk, where the dialogue is very, very slim. Mm -hmm. It's been known that Hans Zimmer in the past has used several technical artifacts expressed in the film to inspire his work in the soundtrack. For example, in Inception, Hans Zimmer takes the initial song, which plays when they need to come out of the dream, and as they get lower and lower and lower into the levels, integrates a slowed version of that initial song into the soundtrack which as a composer is very neat. Granted, there are problems with the way Hans Zimmer talks about scoring and that he has all these machines to do it and doesn't necessarily always give credit to the musicians. That's a different topic entirely. In this film in particular, Ludwig uses some of these same inspirations. He takes quite a few sounds and uses the reverse of them to get this forward and back tension that's created in the film so if you play a record and you push it backwards like maybe a dj would do you get these kind of sounds and that is very present in the soundtrack so the cool thing i think about this soundtrack is a it creates a lot of tension as a good movie soundtrack but it uses these forward and backward directions one other point that i recently found out is there are a few palindromic movie moments in the soundtrack this means that the song in the movie can be played forward and backwards and it sounds the exact same. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a cool homage that not everyone will be able to notice because you're not necessarily listening to the score in reverse. An example of this is at 7.05 in the song from the soundtrack, Posterity.
1: That also takes so much talent.
0: Talent and hard work.
1: But composers really create a mood that I think is hard, like the aural element of film, I think is so important. Even dating back to like silent film, the importance of what music played over the silent film really dictated the mood that it was trying to set.
0: And you think of the role that it's played in movies. People know the soundtracks of John Williams right off the bat. Yeah. And from a symphony perspective, these events where they play the soundtrack alongside the movie are some of the most well-attended symphony events of all time. Sadly, it's a way of bringing people in, but it doesn't put a focus on the orchestra members who are having to record these things. And it also is not realistic of how scores are recorded. Scores Mm -hmm. are recorded over multiple takes, and musicians have plenty of time to rest their chops or their hands, versus when they have to play the entire score at one time. Some of the lines are impossible to maintain on your chops, so it actually hurts the musician's endurance. Wow, yeah. Now we've talked about some of the elements which make up the plot and technical portions of this film. On to our favorite area, what is the symbolism and what is it trying to comment on? In my eyes, as in just Greg's eyes, good films really are able to tell a captivating story alongside heavy symbolism that speaks on a topic further. Here, that line is convoluted. There are definitely elements, themes, and motifs that play into these that could be maybe expanded upon, but there is no unifying symbolism that is attractive about the film.
1: Yeah, I think to an extent there's a commentary on extremes of power and what happens when someone gains too much autonomy. I think partially this film sets up a parallel for us to reflect on our own structures of power and to think about the power structures we are a part of, that we contribute to, that we're subject to, and also who governs us. And to that extent, who governs us if free will is a governing power, if randomness is a governing power in the world of Tenet in this world where you have the ability to go back in time it seems that both free will and randomness would crumble in the face of a reversed entropy world
0: and you really see this through both the protagonist right who is viewed as somebody who is doing absolute good is saving humanity really a protagonist act or is it just one of his own power struggle And then the version of Andre, who has a vision that maybe will heal the earth, definitely reflects on two ideologies that are maybe being spoken about today in our own political system, and even further with the coronavirus and the way things are heading towards the winter. The next topic that I think there is some commentary on is history and, by proxy, memory. One question that we've brought up previously in the zombie portion of Atlantics is, is history of the past living or dead? And what does it mean to alter the past? Or is the past something that's no longer living and is static? Or is it something that continues to change as we move forward?
1: Well, not necessarily altering the past. more rewriting history in a way that includes more voices where the field of vision is widened like the blinders have been taken down
0: on the line of history and memory one thing i question is are we still autonomous without temporal linearity do we uh, deal with this idea of predestination if we can go back in time and our future selves are manipulating things in the past as the characters are doing with Andre and this idea of destruction of the world. In my eyes, I think it's visionary to think about history as a cyclical element and something that's moving both forward and backwards. Perhaps it gives inspiration for future generations to dream about in terms of tech. But what value does it stand to society right now? History? The idea of forward and backwards. Oh. Is there any value in thinking about history in a more cyclical manner?
1: So when you say cyclical, what do you mean?
0: That the future can influence the past and vice versa. Mm. Maybe this plays into the ideas that you were talking about with rewriting history in the sense that as we move forward into the future, we alter the dialogue or rewrite history from the past to then re-change how the future is moving. An example that I can think of right now is the Columbus statues that are being beheaded or torn down. We're rewriting history in some ways to showcase a different dialogue. And how is that now going to change our future as we move forward?
1: Well, is that rewriting history?
0: Compared to how it was written 10 years ago.
1: Well, it's not that it's rewriting because it still happened, right? Columbus still was a major dick
0: yeah Uh, rewriting in the sense of the way the history is told
1: all history is is perspective and it's not that history is alive and dead at the same time it's that for history to exist for there to be a past you have to acknowledge that the past is dead i'm just saying dude i study this shit because we've critiqued a lot already perhaps the splendor of this film lies in the fact that it is about the art of filmmaking itself
0: And I think this is what Nolan's whole mantra is about. Mm -hmm. He is a storyteller at the end of the day who is entrenched in his technical expertise and his ability to tell stories that entertain but don't necessarily operate symbolically on multiple levels.
1: Yeah, I agree. The spectacle of Tenet in itself undoubtedly lies in nolan's dedication to in-camera practical effects for this film he actually blew up a 747 airplane he had a massive budget and was able to do that and because he has the ability to do this There's an undeniable magic to a film that does not rely on green screen, but rather creative means to realistically portray what seems impossible.
0: And this isn't the first time he's done this either. No. For example, in Batman, when the Mm -hmm. truck goes vertical, that was one of the most cool scenes to date at that point.
1: Yeah. And Interstellar. Most of the space scenes were filmed underwater.
0: So to this element of creating realistic effects, this film features both forward and backwards passes on the same scenes. But what's hard here is that the film is not just reversed. The choreography is actually inverted as well in the sense that some of the scenes were done to look as though they're moving in reverse, but they're moving forward. So actors are pretending to get hit like they're going backwards in time. And I thought this was incredible from a actor stuntman perspective. This would be so hard to recapitulate. Mm -hmm. So props to those portions of the cast that did an excellent job, especially in the culmination scene that I liked so much with the gas masks and where Pattinson and Washington start to realize it's actually themselves they're seeing going back in time.
1: Yeah, and he has this way about him in movies where, Nolan that is, where he tries to cue the viewer in by subtle visuals that you have to keep track of in order to keep on top of where the characters are in time and space. So in this case, the gas masks, when they're going back in time, and even the red and blue armbands. And he does this in other movies too, right? Like in Inception with the top. And I've said this in our first episode, but I maintain that it's not the top that is the tell of whether or not Leo DiCaprio is in a dream or not. It is if Michael Caine is in the scene.
0: So the only scene in Inception that he's not dreaming is the scene where he gets Ariadne from the school.
1: No, if Michael Caine is in the scene, it's real life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So he's, Michael Caine is playing the professor. Yeah. And that's where Leo goes to get his student. So that means everything else is in dream.
1: Yes. You really think that Nolan is going to leave us on this giant cliffhanger at the end where the top is spinning and we never know?
0: I don't think it's about the top.
1: Then how do you know if
0: he's in a dream or not? It doesn't matter. He's accepted his reality. Is it his reality, though? Now it is. It doesn't matter if it's a dream or not. It's what he (laughs) he believes is true.
1: Okay, that's true. That's true. Regardless, (laughs) I don't think that anyone would disagree that Nolan is a filmmaker who is pushing cinema forward despite these flaws that we've noted. With the expository dialogue, flat characters, and this glaring plot complexity. It still encompasses what people love about a Nolan film and how he brands his work to be so singular and poignant because he clearly has a grip on the craft of film and cinema and he has a passion for telling truly unique stories, which is like maybe that's why we can't make meaning out of this film because it's so individual and singular
0: i don't know if i agree with that the plot in itself is not original yeah but the way it's depicted is original yeah and i think that's what defines tenant in his canon for me is that as a whole the plot is not anything groundbreaking but the way he showcases the plot here is much different and new and unique and that's what brings this film to life and so it seems in some ways a technical reveling in his ability to story tell something that is difficult to visualize, mm-hmm. but not necessarily a strong new plot, like, for example, Inception yeah. or Dunkirk. Well, actually, I take that back. So Inception and Interstellar were new stories that were never really thought about. But Dunkirk, he did the same thing with history. He took something that was a known portrayal. Mm-hmm and then started to invert it and make it his own through this nonlinear timeline through a storytelling that was void of a lot of language etc so maybe it's in line with dunkirk in that same canon the thing i particularly think that nolan has done which has made him so captivating is that he always brings a new experience whether or not it's the plot or the way it's being shown or it's some mystery that is associated with it. I think that's what audiences go to Nolan Films to see, is to get this new cinema experience that they've never seen or had before. And personally, I would argue that this is the influence that led me to start analyzing film. I think Inception really sowed the seeds for me to start seeing more in film because it asked you to look closer at it to try and find answers. And I like that about Nolan's films is that he encourages a wide variety of people to start thinking critically like that in film. But to that point, people don't necessarily always do that when they're not watching a Nolan film because sometimes people just go to the movies to relax. Mm -hmm. On a final note though, I felt that this schematic for Nolan is starting to get overused. He's starting to become predictable in what he's going to do within the film. And I'm not sure if this is him just reusing themes he knows and enjoys because he wants to explore them more, or if this is an artist in his prime who wants to reap the rewards of the machine that he's created while also telling a story that he enjoys but is not necessarily pushing the boundary for what he's capable of. We had a lot of other questions too, such as... What's with the free port? Why is it free? Are we overthinking it? Probably. What, what's, what's with the art forgery? What's with the art influences? Why is art a present portion of the film? Anything to say, Art History?
1: Ha! No, yeah, that was very underdeveloped. and It seemed like it could have gone without that subplot. Or we just did not get it at all.
0: Yeah. I feel like it would have been more pertinent if it was just, like, watch collections. You know what I'm saying? Because then it would have been time pieces. Then they would have been moving through time, literally. Uh, Big brain.
1: Antique watches. Big brain. Oh, y'all. Greg has the biggest brain.
0: <laughs> moving on to ratings. Okay. I would rate this film a i'm torn between a 6.5 and a 7
1: Mm, what about 6.75
0: Nah, (laughs) i will not engage with the anarchy of you and your two decimal system i'm gonna give this film a seven part of that probably is nostalgic just because it is christopher nolan so yeah good job for your rep buddy I think this film brought something new to the cinema, which is great. That's where it's strongest. It captures complex time moving both forward and backwards. This has been played a lot with in recent movies, like The Avengers. It hasn't been done the way Nolan did it and with as clear a vision as he did it. This leads to some great visuals and aha moments, which are a thrill for the viewer. Watching it, I always love that turning point where you're like oh i see what you're doing as with most nolan films there is a fantastic critical point in the film where everything comes together and you really are engaged with the story although i didn't feel this was as strong as other films I did, though, think it was better than Interstellar at showcasing multiple timelines and the way that time was viewed because the whole ending scene of Interstellar is some whack shit and still to this day is the weakest point of that film, hands down. Nolan does a great job sowing the seeds to make this twist believable, although I caught on quicker than what I expected to normally catch on to. And so this makes me question, is he just trying to appeal to a larger audience Am I getting smarter, or is Nolan just being more obvious about it? And like you mentioned, this is partially because of the expositional dialogue. And so while the film has some of these high notes, the plot altogether is not original. It's about eco-terrorism, and if the bad guy can't have it all, then nobody can. So overall, I love the execution, but I thought the plot was weak. I thought the uh, writing was weak. And it felt hyper edited at times. The actor chemistry didn't quite work for me. Like you said, Pattinson gave the best performance. But, like, why was Michael Caine even in this movie?
1: That I really think was just like a, oh, gotta have Caine in here.
0: And I wonder if it's creating a connection to Inception, where we talk about movie verses, and I hope. That Nolan is not doing this. Because it seems like there are theories that all the big directors are creating verses like Marvel did. I hope that Nolan is not planning to try and connect Inception with Tenet. But I wouldn't necessarily see it being that far out. Also, because there was no character overlap.
1: Are you not a fan of the movie-verse?
0: No, no. I just think let that be Marvel's thing. Mm, Okay. No need to try and copy it. Do your own thing. Yeah. Overall, for me, I give it a seven. Entertaining movie. Fun to watch. Fun to figure out. But beyond that, doesn't have a ton more working for it. First watch, you'll appreciate the great visuals. But the plot will seem somewhat weak. But perhaps you'll be so caught up in trying to figure out the technicals. You won't notice that the plot is weak. Yeah. So seven? Seven. Seven is what I'm giving it. Nice.
1: Yeah, I agree. The plot isn't that strong. I feel like if you were to simplify the plot to its main elements and tell it to someone and say, guess what movie this is, I bet some of them would guess like Back to the Future or something because there's a lot of, um, analogous characters, you don't think so?
0: <laughs> there ain't no eco-terrorism in there's Back no to the Future. There's no
1: eco-terrorism, but there's, you know, Biff is like the satyr. just kidding. I've really
0: not seen in Back to the Future.
1: You've not seen Back to the Future?
0: Nope. I have seen bits and pieces, but I've never watched the full thing.
1: Greg, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think, too, the acting, yeah, was just not as strong as I wanted it to be. I'm going to agree with you and give this film a seven. I think there's a lot of value in that initial excitement that I got after watching the film when it ended and I was like, Oh my gosh. Like that was so cool. And that was like the craziest thing I've ever seen. I think that says a lot and it's not, until I start to think about it that I'm like well it's not really saying much but then it also goes to show that even for someone like me who is really annoying about film (laughs) and like the whole what do things mean and trying to apply my knowledge to film it goes to show that for me to still enjoy it just for entertainment sake which I've mention that that rarely happens because i get too caught up in the discrepancies of the film that holds value so i think a seven is a fair score for this film
0: yeah so next week
1: we're doing lemonade baby
0: (laughs) next week we're going to be deviating from the traditional cinema canon and going for a visual album yes we're going for the one and only Lemonade
1: by Beyonce Knowles-Carter. But don't be fooled. <laughs> still a narrative, still visually complex, still symbolically complex.
0: It's going to be an exciting episode, something different, something new. Yeah. In our spare time, we also watched a bit of The Trial of the Chicago 7, mm-hmm. which so far has been an excellent film.
1: I've enjoyed it very much so far.
0: I love that we're seeing <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen. I don't know how to say his name. I am excited that Sasha is playing a new role that is more serious, but I think he fits the role great. There's a star studded cast, which shout out Netflix got all this money, goddamn. They're just hiring all these big name actors. Yeah. One thing I am excited also for in the cinema world is Borat 2. (laughs) If you liked Borat 1, hopefully this will live up to the expectations. Next week we're going to be watching Lemonade. We're excited. Give it a listen or watch. It's on HBO, I believe. Enjoy your week. We'll hopefully talk to you in two weeks about Lemonade. Uh, beyond that, yeah, catch us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We have our website up, and you can always stream the episodes there or connect with our RSS feed. Oella. Ach. <laughs> That's backwards. Hello. Aloha. Ole. Ole.
1: Oella. No. Oh, oh lech.